Hi, everyone. Welcome to Tent Talks. We have a very special guest today, Morgan Gonzalez. Hello. Hello. I'm going to surprise Morgan and the audience and share the story (laughs) of when Morgan and I first became friends. We're going to go all the way back to sixth grade. Morgan had a barn. And in the barn, she would host scandalous parties for sixth and seventh graders. Suck and blow. Yeah, we would play suck and blow. And that's when he knew we were friends. Celine Dion. (laughs) We would play Celine Dion album and just like feel it so deep. What were we doing? I don't know. Fast forward. We were awesome. We were awesome. Mm -hmm. Fast forward now. We kind of have re collaborated a little bit. You did my postpartum work, which was yeah. amazing. Yes. Mm-hmm. You are now a therapist. I am. And I kind of want to hear about how you got into that. And I want to hear your journey with everything that you're doing for Utah. Wonderful. Yes. Well, I just fell into it. I'm going to be honest. Okay. <laughs> I went to Westminster College for my undergrad degree. And I actually have an undergrad in criminal justice with a minor in psychology and gender oh, studies. I didn't know that. Yes. And I was a junior and I didn't know what I was going to do. And this lovely play therapist who was my professor came to me and said, I think you should be a social worker. And I said, I don't know what social workers do. And she said, I just think you'd be really good at it. You should go to this group home and become a staff member. So I did. Mm -hmm. And I loved working with adolescent males during that time. And then I graduated and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was going to be a police officer, but they wanted to put me through post, but they wanted me to go six months earlier and not finish college. And this very pivotal, wonderful woman who is a great friend said to me, don't be a police officer, do something else. And I said, okay. And so I- um, Thank you, friend. Yeah, thank you, friend, so much, Leslie. And so I decided to become a social worker and I went to rural South Sam Pete County was okay. where I was very first placed as a child protective service worker. Wow. I was 21. I did was not know this part of your journey. Kids away at 21. Uh, yes. So I lived in Manti for an entire year. And then that was very overwhelming. So I ended up moving to American Fork. Mm-hmm. And I spent three years doing child protective services in American Fork. And I was completely burned out, and I was diagnosed with secondary trauma due to a really traumatic case Mm. that I saw right after that case. I decided that I didn't have enough education to do this job, and I definitely needed more support and help. So I got into the University of Denver's Graduate School of Social Work. That's kind of where I started following you. You were in Colorado. Yeah, I was in Colorado. I moved to Denver, just struck out on my own. And I went to the University of Denver, and there I specialized specifically in trauma work and families. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I was lucky enough, I internshiped my last year of my master's program at a hospital, and they picked me up, and they gave me a job, thank goodness, because I did not know what I was going to do after my master's program. And so I became a social worker in a hospital. And I worked at Sky Ridge Medical Center for about a year. And then I was doing a diversion program in their emergency department. So anybody who came in with substance abuse or alcohol intoxication, I was helping get them access to resources. Mm -hmm. And so I was working in the emergency department, the ICU, doing a lot of trauma, end-of-life care. And then the University of Colorado sought me out and said, come work for us. And I was like, 
okay. So I interview for them and they say, you're going to be on our 11th floor. And I was like, oh, is that where the emergency department is? And they're like, no, that's where oncology is. And I was like, oncology? I'm like, I even really like cancer. Like I've never worked on on the cancer unit. We didn't have that. So I got fortunate enough to work on the cancer unit at the University of Colorado Hospital for about five years. And I just fell in love with Mm. like having the honor to be with people at that time in their lives because they don't have to let me into their rooms. I got to see some really beautiful, tragic, sad suffering. But I always say there's beauty in suffering and there's suffering that's beautiful. So I spent tons of time in the oncology unit. And then my partner and I decided to move to Utah. And (laughs) I said, I will only move to Utah if we live in Salt Lake. And we ended up buying two and a half acres in Janola. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> uh, and we then, then that was five years ago. So I've been in Utah for the past five years. And since that time, I have been doing private practice. And I started out initially at Noetic Psychiatry, which was the first ketamine clinic ever in Utah. And then I worked for another company. And then I started my own company. So therapy transformed. Therapy transformed March of last year. So we're about a year and a few months into our business, and we are an all women's business, and we oh, are I all women's brand leadership business. So it's really amazing, and that's what I do now. And I focus primarily on trauma, and I also have a ketamine clinic with a doctor in Salem. Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> just to repeat some of the things back, you've looked at trauma from a lot of different angles. First starting out in first responder, like DCFS Mm -hmm. type social work setting, cancer. Yep. Like to see trauma, and now as a therapist with mental health, trauma accumulates in a lot of different ways. It can happen physically, it can happen situationally, it can happen with your physical health, your mental health. There's a lot of ways that people collect trauma and store it in their body. Mm -hmm. And it, it just gives me a moment to pause in your early years, like you feeling overwhelmed with trauma and not having all of that knowledge that you later got in your advanced degree. Yeah. Like we put so much on social workers that they're just simply ill-equipped to handle, or there's a burnout rate that's possible because those situations are very traumatic. Yeah, there was no way to be prepared for the things that I saw doing child protective services. You're not raised, and you don't get a bachelor's degree, right, in like just specifically trauma. Yeah. You get a bachelor's degree and they're like, here, go work for Child Protective Services and figure out how to survive when you're 20, yeah. 21, 22, seeing the saddest parts of humanity and still having to have hope that there are good people out there. Yeah, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. And it really puts into context like police officers who yeah. are first responders or ambulance crew, EMT If you don't have language and tools to manage your trauma, like what, what, what do we do? Yeah. There's so many parts and layers. There's so much. It's an onion. 
You have to think of trauma as an onion. Yeah. As a trauma expert, I look at trauma differently. And I tell all of my clients this is that trauma is all about perspective. You know, Stacey, you and I could be sitting here and there could be a building blow up right next door. And you might be on the ground freaking out. And I might just be like, "Ah, less people in the world, right? Like trauma is all about perspective in that way. Mm -hmm. But if, you know, as a therapist and the research that we're showing on trauma is that trauma begins in utero. Mm. Right. So we have carried trauma. And if trauma begins in utero, if I am in utero and I have, you know, a mother or a carrier who is struggling with daily basic needs or is worried about their well-being and their safety. Or doesn't know how to manage stress well. It, yeah. It extends Anxiety. socioeconomic yeah. structures. Yeah. Yeah. And so trauma is intergenerational and mm-hmm. it starts in utero. And then also, you're born out of a vaginal canal. That's traumatic. Yeah. No one thinks about that when I say that. I'm like, we come into this world with trauma. Or surgically removed. Right. Yeah. It's so devastating. We are ripped from the womb that we know that is safe and secure. And we are brought into a world and humans traumatize each other, right? Like that is something that is in human nature. Yeah. If you think about it. Yeah. And so if we look at trauma in this very progressive and kind of long-standing. Not only do we have intergenerational trauma, we have in utero trauma, we have childhood developmental trauma. Then we have all the other traumas, right? Teenagers. Religious trauma, teenage trauma, higher education trauma that no one talks about. Mm. We have bullying. We have any type of situation. I always tell anybody, any type of situation that you feel that when you think about it, you have shame or embarrassment around it, is traumatic. Oh, I like that as a measurement of trauma. Yeah. Do you feel shame or embarrassed? Yeah. That's an area where you're storing some trauma. That's where it's at. And people will be like, my life was fine. And then I'll be like, let's talk more about those areas. And then they'll be like, oh, I remember, you know, my friends turned against me when I was in sixth grade. And then I think about that and it kind of gives me that feeling. Yeah. That's trauma. Yeah. Right? Wow. I'm going to sit with that and think about that in context to myself. And I'm going to share that with other people. That just really struck me. Yeah. My measure for like growth is feeling that embarrassed or like icky, vulnerable. That's how I know I'm doing growth work Mm -hmm. is when I get a little uncomfortable or embarrassed. Yeah. That's where healing begins. Yeah. So yeah, to close those as like bookends, like... Mm -hmm. Look for those areas and then seek those areas again. Yeah. Yeah. Sitting within the discomfort. Yeah. Is really uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable. Yeah. And in the dark is where the light is found. And there's beauty and suffering. And there is suffering. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yep. Oh, Morgan. (laughs) (laughs) Look at us bond over trauma. (laughs) Trauma trauma bonding. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Let's get in a relationship now and figure it out. <laughs> Done. Signed, sealed, delivered. Da, 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 da. That's, how, that's how a lot of people start relationships. Yeah. And that kind of goes hand in hand, I think, with religious trauma because a lot of times we bond over these really terrible things. Yeah. And we feel that that's how connection works. Mm-hmm. And that's at least in my journey what I've found. Yeah. Like, I don't think any child should be thinking about, like, 
hell as much as I was. Yeah. Religious <laughs> scrupulosity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Religious dynamics create anxiety. And they then anxiety do. keeps us in our in our space, right? Like yeah. it keeps you kind of complying. It keeps you complicit. It keeps you submissive. It keeps you where they want you to be. In Controllable. General. Controllable. Yeah. yeah. An interesting thing that along with a lot of the work that I am doing, especially around spiritual journeys is what I like to call them instead of, um, we have this thing that people are calling them religious transitions or crises of faith. And I'm like, no, 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 let's, let's positive spin it. It's actually a spiritual journey. Yeah, it is. And we talk a lot about emotional codependence. Yes. Which is born into childhood, into us. It is taught to us quite quickly and quite swiftly. But then society, culture, religion, family structures all just kind of keep, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of feeding that emotional codependence. And this is actually where trauma bonding comes along is that I don't know where I end and you begin emotionally. Yep. I want to say no, but I say yes because I think I should. And then all of a sudden now I'm in a relationship and I don't know where that person ends and I begin and we just kind of lay on top of each other is Mm -hmm. how I tell people is like you're just laying on top of each other and all this nasty emotional codependence and that is trauma yeah that's trauma working its way into our adult relationships and then we wonder why into adulthood we have these maladaptive behaviors and it comes from trauma and emotional codependence every time i think i'm getting a leg up on codependency, <laughs> I, it's that onion effect i'm just like oh well actually no back um, I, I consider myself an emotional codependent recoverer and i'm going to be in recovery for the rest of my days yeah mm-hmm. yeah i mean i have the al-anon daily affirmations yeah. readily available at yeah. any time because i do i need to circle back to it yep very regularly absolutely I love that about you. Thank you. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about your pathway to recovery. Yeah, my personal journey. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. So I come from a long line of addiction and substance abuse. I think everybody does. I think everybody does. And I think we all also have our own addictions. I do believe that. And so I found myself in a situation about two years ago, Mm -hmm. really thinking about my own relationship with alcohol, right? I am someone who, if you tell me to quit something because it's like not good or not fashionable, or maybe you shouldn't be doing that, it's not healthy, I'll just quit it. I have this very lovely, thank goodness, part of my personality that if someone says, that's not great, you should do it. Or if I think, oh, that's not serving me, I'll just quit. Yeah. So I personally don't know what it feels like to be addicted to a harmful substance that is slowly killing me. I do know what it's like to have an unhealthy relationship with a harmful substance that is killing me. Yeah. Yeah. And I I wanna make that distinction because I think that there is a huge distinction around that. And when you make that distinction, what it does is it opens its arms so it includes everyone. Yeah. And something that I talk a lot about is that you don't have to have a problem with alcohol to think about your relationship with alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. So much so. Yeah. So about two years ago, really during kind of the, you know, coming down from COVID, I really had to examine my relationship with myself. And this is when I started doing a lot of work in recovery on my own emotional codependence and really digging into figuring out how do I talk to clients and also live by what I'm saying? Because I don't like to be a hypocrite. Yeah. And so I found myself kind of like talking about all these things and like harm reduction and like doing all of this stuff. And then I was like, oh, 
I need to look at my own back door and I need to do my own work. So that's when I started working on emotional codependence. And then that led into, you know, really, I got sick. I got really, really sick. I was hiking. I had hiked the West Grand Canyon and we had hiked for like three days straight. And then I came back and I was hiking Lake Blanche like two weeks later and my body shut down. I went into kind of some, um, I had acute myocarditis, which is I had an infection around the lining of my heart. Oh, Um, yeah. So pretty serious when you're up on the mountain and you have to quickly get down because you you're not doing well. And and I remember sitting on the mountain thinking, oh, it's probably just because I'm kind of hungover and dehydrated because we had been drinking the night before up in Salt Lake and. And I got down and I drove home and I had ended up having to see the doctor the next day because I had gotten so sick overnight. And at that moment, I just really had to, I really had to dig deep around what I was doing to my body and how to create a healthier relationship within myself. I had quite a bit of anxiety. I had a lot of stressors and I wasn't managing well. I wasn't doing well with them, even as a therapist, right? Like I'm still a human. And I had had some postpartum trauma that I hadn't worked on. And just I wasn't doing well. I was kind of hiding and numbing. And I wasn't really recognizing the things that I was doing. And so on June 13th of last year, Mm -hmm. I decided to completely stop alcohol. And I am now 14 months alcohol-free yesterday. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. I'm so proud of myself. It was such a big thing. And then, you know, it's even been even bigger to share my journey on social media because a lot of what I get back can be pretty stereotyping of my family of like, oh, we we would probably assume that you had an addiction or like you had some struggles because of your family. And and I like to lovingly remind people of like, you don't have to be an alcoholic to change your relationship with alcohol. And, and mm-hmm. we shouldn't diminish people's stories who decide to make healthier choices for themselves as far as their mental health, their emotional and physical well-being. And, and I really wanted to create the four pillars of myself, which is physical, sexual, emotional, and mental well-being. And I really wanted to work on that. Yeah. And so I've spent the last 37 years plus the last year and a half of being alcohol-free to really kind of just uh, dig deep around who I am and and I also wanted to make sure physically I was doing okay. My body is really important to me. It's our only vessel. And I wasn't doing well by my body. Yeah. I feel that way so much with my relationship with food. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, everybody emotionally eats. Yeah, we all do. And there's actually nothing wrong with that. Mm-mm. It's when you're numbing out or choosing it instead of like feeling an emotion, just hurry and trying to numb or some aspect of the inner child is in charge Yep, and they're just like (laughs) running amok. Mm -hmm. And I think it takes a great amount of presence to have these little conversations with yourself every day because alcohol is so it's so normalized it's socially acceptable and and same with food you know mm-hmm. food is even more so because we have to have it to survive yeah <laughs> but when but when you realize that there's a dysfunctional relationship with it then every opportunity to eat becomes like 
an invitation to be present with yourself. And that kind of presence is very draining. And I don't think it's good to do all the time, of course. But when you're noticing yourself getting triggered or feeling those shame feelings or those embarrassment, Mm -hmm. then you realize, oh, okay, I have some trauma around this. And it's a relationship to heal. And I've been working on that for a long time. And I think it'll be a lifelong relationship or exploration into what does it feel like to have a healthy relationship with food for me? Yeah. Yeah. I just always think healing is a journey. Yeah. And we always come to wise, right? Like mm-hmm. wise are like the divide of the journey trail, I think of it. And and you get to decide. You can take a left or a right during a why, and your journey is going to take you and the universe is going to provide. And and for me, this was kind of that smack in the face of like the universe kind of kicked my ass is what I normally yeah. say. And it was like, hey, Morgan, like you're hiking, but then you're drinking, you know, or you're like, you're taking care of your body and you're working it out so hard and, and you still have postpartum trauma that you haven't dealt with and, and all these Mm. different things. Right. And I feel like the, the universe really calls to me in a lot of areas and space and, and being alcohol free has opened my energies to be more engaged and present, Mm -hmm. to have that energy about me to say like, this is who I am and it's not hidden. It's not hidden. It's not hidden. And there was a lot of times that I felt like I hid, whether it be alcohol or sports or family or perfectionism or how I look or how I engage in the world around me. Mm-hmm. And now with all the work that I've been doing, and I'm going to keep doing it the rest of my life, I don't feel like I have to hide from me. That's such a relief, isn't it? It's like a oh, deep breath. Ah, It's like a million pounds off your shoulders. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. This has been the best... I, I don't know. Of course, there's personal reasons that I love this conversation because <laughs> I just love seeing your face and connecting. But we want to have you back next week. I'm available and ready. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And just as a little teaser for the audience, we're going to talk a lot about ketamine. Yeah. And the psychedelic renaissance yeah, is upon us. The psychedelic renaissance. So thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of these great tool. I I think I got some tools from today's conversation that are really going to stick with me. I hope so. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.